Welcome to Poppin' Off, a special episode of Bubbles and Books, where we pop off with some of the most interesting, intelligent, wonderful, amazeballs people in our community. So, we are introing now that we've had a chat. Okay, what are we drinking today? This is this is so Mac yeah. with uh, chummy Who food. Are we with? Oh, okay, fine. Friends, she'll, she'll get it in the right we'll order. Little, 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 little. Okay, you, you, you still want to work, Rachel? Yes. Yeah. Welcome to Bubbles and Books. We're not drinking bubbles today because we have a special guest. Well, there's gonna be bubbles involved. Yeah, beer bubbles. Oh, carbonation will be involved. Here we go. Here's the pop. Kick, kick. <laughs> These are going to be a little bit stiff, but I figure it's, you know, it's, it's, it's Friday. Uh, I read down. that it's You're supposed so to down. be um, 30% soju and 70% beer. Well, if we want to be technical about it, <laughs> yeah. Okay, that looks I'm really gonna, good. Joe. I'm going to trust Joe. Okay, you can pour up Rachel too. Yeah, sorry. And I'll even show you an old drinking game. Oh, yes. Um, that you, you always... Okay. So, like, um, th- this is a much bigger bottle than I ever saw. Like, <laughs> but what you do with with these, um, so it's an old drinking game where you you twist it up. This one looks a little bit stiffer than I'm used to, and then you twist it up like this, so you get it to be a bit like that. And it should be threatening to break, but before it breaks. And how this game works is you, you're passing it around. Okay. The next person, you keep on flicking it. The person that breaks, breaks it. Has to take a shot. Has to take a shot. Or it's the two people next to that person Ooh, who breaks it have to take shots. Um, it's depending on uh, the specific, you know, whatever the people agree on. Is it soju specific or South yeah, Korean? Because it's, it's soju specific because of the, how the their bottles are made. How the caps always yeah. break off in that way. That's so cool. Okay. So flick the lid. Okay, go, Ellen. Right. Yes. All right, I'm going to go. That one might take some Does time. Does it go both alternate ways? You're, you're, you're supposed to knock it like one direction to the opposite if you want to play it honestly. If you cheat, you start doing like at angles and all that. Bubbles and Books is hosting Joe Mylan Jr. Um, I was thinking... Um, when, oh! <laughs> you have to drink! <laughs> Probably because I can't pronounce authors' last names. Okay, in the cap, yeah, that's reasonable. Ooh, I can actually, do that. Actually, but that that cap right there is is it worth the shot. Oh, would it be a bubbles and book if we didn't spill? All right, go. <laughs> hey, that's not bad. <laughs> it's a it's a low grade vodka, so yeah. Soju yeah, is made from either rice or sweet potato. Ours is made from sweet potato. Ooh. This is what I read. And um, it is authentically from South Korea. It says yeah, product of South Korea. That's general chamisu. So anyone that's that's in the know, that's that's legit. Um, the one thing though, if you're in Korea and you ask people like, what what is soju made out of? And everyone will just say chemicals. Yeah. Yeah. Bottled in Seoul since 1924. Yeah. Cheers. So welcome. Thank you for having me. Um, we 
are friends Ooh, because nice. we met in St. Louis at Heartland Fall Forum, where all the booksellers in the Midwest come together. And I remember when you sat down at our table, the dog-eared books table, I think we were all together. <laughs> Did they scare you? No. I, I felt like you can be I felt like we were like a little <laughs> overwhelming. Um, or also, was that the first time you'd ever done like a whole room full of pitching your books? Yeah. Your book? So, so I, I don't know how how much people listening would would know, but um, there's there's it was what was it called a movable feast? Yeah. And like what we had to do was go around and you had five minutes to pitch your book to a whole bunch of booksellers and you're really motivated to sell your book. And it's, um, it was absolutely terrifying because I didn't know this was, that was how it was going to happen until I landed in the airplane. <laughs> um, and I get off and the guy picking me up, he's uh, working with the publisher and he's like, Oh yeah. And did everyone, did someone walk you through like what's going to happen? And I was like, I, I kind of, they like, I have to go meet with booksellers. And it's like, yeah, you get like five minutes to pitch it. And, um, yeah, I, I thought like, okay, I can do this. And it was, like what I remember about dog ears table is like everyone else is it, it, it's awkward because if people are eating some some tables were eating some yeah. tables are you know but everybody was nice I will say that like everybody really wanted to hear what the what what us authors wanted to say but you guys were were ruckus like <laughs> yeah. like I could hear you guys like three tables away. <laughs> And I was, I was, I was thinking like, yeah, that's the, that's the table where it's going to be fun. And because we know how to have fun, that's why we're having so Mac with you. Um, we usually have a drink with most things that we do at the store. Um, so we were very, um, excited that you were willing to play our game. Um, when you came on the show, um, the show, this is a show podcast, <laughs> this is a podcast. Um, and we're going to have a great time because we're hosting you in August. Yeah. Um, and we've been talking up your book since it hit the store in April. Um, we have sold quite a few copies. Um, and Ellen awesome. and I are both, we're both reading it right now. Yep. So it, we usually start yeah. the show, the show. We listened to we, the first several chapters together in the car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And because we were catalog her. ordering, yeah. and then she continued her way, which is digital reading, and I continued. No, I did. I have you a did hard copy. You have, have a hard, hard copy. copy. Yeah. We also have a hard copy with someone else um, at the store, Chad, um, who was in the military, oh, and wow. so okay. we like to share hosting duties amongst the staff and give everyone like an opportunity to connect with a particular book. And we were curious if Chad, who doesn't read fiction would connect with this book because of the journey that Bucky goes on. He's yeah. also a, a sports guy too. Yeah. I was like read I was in bed reading your book the other night and my husband was like, like super annoying and like reading over my shoulder <laughs> yeah. and asking questions and trying to talk to me. I'm like, oh my God, go away. But he was like, are you reading a football book? <laughs> I was like, well kind of a little, I a little. Mean, there's football in here. So it's called the All American. <laughs> Um, which has many layers. We yeah. put it in our Fourth of July window. It has Thank such you. a great cover. I think that's one of like the gifts that your publisher gave you was like a really great cover. Yeah, the the cover was um, the the cover artist got it got it right from the from the get go. The only only it wasn't even a dispute, but the only thing originally there was a um, all the writing on there mm -hmm. was from originally was from a map 
like a Chinese map of mm-hmm. the region, and mm-hmm. I couldn't read any of that. I was like, I that no, we don't <laughs> it's <read> not accurate. <laughs> um, and they're like, we don't care. We're, this is just like our mock-up. What, what are you thinking? And I I did I did some research, and I worked with the with the designer a little bit. Um, I found the original like newspaper notice of the Korean Constitution in nineteen like forty six that was printed, and I was like, let's let's use this. Yeah. Um, and that's it's it's there now most of it's still in like chinese characters in korean we we call it like hanja it's kind of like that same sort of thing like how we use roman numerals for right. official things and um but that is actually the constitution that's so cool <laughs> okay so why don't you describe for our listeners give us your five minute or <laughs> two your two minute like, pitch why'd i come pitch. here your two minute pitch um because i can th- i can say what i think it's about yeah. but i think it's way cooler to hear from an author what is the all-american yeah um the all-american is about a korean american kid who's abandoned and raised in a uh, rural western washington trailer park as he grows up he dreams of being being a nfl running back at this stage he wants to be a college running back (laughs) and things go wrong with his family and things keep on going wrong so instead of you know, being scouted and going to college, he ends up getting deported from the United States and conscripted into the South Korean army. That's the very short. That is a great synopsis. I have so many questions. I think Ellen does too. One of the things is we know you live here in Forest City um, in the state of Iowa, but I also know that you are, you are second generation Korean American. So tell me a little bit about your history and connection to Korean uh, ancestry. Where'd you grow up? How'd you end up in Forest City? And how do you connect to your <laughs> Korean back yeah. ancestry? Why are you in Iowa? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, my parents were both in the Navy. So my mother immigrated from Korea into, in the early 70s, and she joined the U.S. Navy um and met my father in japan and so i was born there and i spent my early childhood there and then moved around a bunch as most navy brats do um and i ended up near near seattle in a town called silverdale but it's near bremerton which is near seattle um, so the region that the book takes place, that's actually where I spent most of my Thank childhood. Thank you for drawing those connections. <laughs> yeah. I'm so curious. I, I wondered, yeah. Yeah, how uh, did Washington play into it? So that's so cool. Yeah. And, and so, also the military background of your family yeah. plays into Bucky's yeah, like journey. My, my uncle on my mother's side um, was in the Air Force. My, my father was in the Navy. My mother was in the Navy. My grandfather did the Army. And like it... Yeah, my fam a lot of a lot of members of my family. Like I was one of the first ones not to do anything with the with the military. Was there an expectation that you would consider it? Um yes and no. The the yes was um I didn't start out. I wasn't a very smart kid. At least I didn't demonstrate it. Um I feel and- like you I read a lot of that self-perception and Bucky's self-perception. He calls himself Meathead, you know, well, and every, well, <laughs> his love interest calls him Meathead. <laughs> but he also he's hard yeah. on himself. He's like, yeah. you know, he he's walking that line of trying to prove that he's more 
than what just a meathead. Well, I mean, for for Bucky, like his big contention is everyone's always telling him what they think he's going to be. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is based off stereotypes. So they look at him, they, they see an Asian kid, so they assume that he's good at math. The, Bucky's good at a lot of things. He's not good at math. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also, he's not very good at school. And for me, like as, as a child, I was not very good at school. And I did receive a lot of those kinds of stereotypes where, you know, um, teachers like math teachers would hand quizzes back or whatever and it wasn't terrible but it wasn't good but they always looked at it like i was, I was they were they, confused they were confused it was like I, I was playing a joke or something mm-hmm. um and so i did experience that but by and large um my childhood was leaps and bounds better than um than bucky's but yeah like for me i i grew up there then um went to college in seattle um, University of Washington, go Huskies. Um, <laughs> and, and then, um, afterwards I thought I was, I originally, I wanted to be a filmmaker. That's what I really wanted to do. And, um, I went, I went to the one school that didn't have a film program and I just hung out in, in the theater program, trying to learn how to playwright and stuff, thinking that like, okay, this will help me write the script that I have in the back of my head. And I worked freelance film stuff in in seattle area when i say freelance film stuff it sounds really cool um, because every once in a while i did do independent films where i would work on sets and all that but um mostly it was things like furniture commercials yeah and (laughs) that's cool and like um one wretched poker tournament which was oh my gosh it was 36 hours of two people folding mind numbing oh my god that was painful even though like the 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 announcer like the people, they had to be there for when the wind happened, but yeah. they, they just slept on some some couches and you know, <laughs> wake up, we, wake up. Yeah, and so we were something happened. To, so we were supposed to be there to do that, but I did all that, and um, my parents were living in Hawaii at that time, so I moved moved back in after college because um, I had to help out with the family. You know, there was illness and all that kind of stuff. And while I was there, I took a trip back over to Korea, and I'd done so periodically, but that that one trip. Um, changed things for me because I was thinking, why do I want to go to LA now? LA is always going to be there. Right. And Korea is here. And I saw all these, um, I saw all these non-Koreans running around, which I had never seen before. And these weren't GIs. And I thought like, Hey, maybe I could go do something. I had an English degree too. Um, and I thought, okay, I can go teach. And yeah. I got a teaching certificate um and i went over there i was going to be there for one year and that turned into nine how <laughs> did that how did that happen that it was nine years because i saw your i love that you still have your teaching website oh yeah that you taught like <laughs> popular american culture like what makes something popular you also like yeah. th- what a way to draw people into the ling- the language because bucky goes through a whole experience of having to learn korean um out of necessity and out of people shaming him because he doesn't speak his language. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> um, did you grow up bilingual? Did your mom teach you the language or did you learn it in Korea? I learned it as an adult in Korea. I was born, um, I had a, one of those really terrible ear infections. And back oh, yeah. then in the 80s, like they were pretty slow on what to do with me. And so I was more or less pretty close to death for about a year, year and a half wow. when I was really, really little. And that, that, um, 
prevented me from speaking any languages until I was way late. Um, and because of that, back back then, they were doctors were always of the opinion, like, don't teach the kid more than one language because he can't speak any languages. You're just going to wow. confuse him. Wow. And so um, the only time my mother would speak Korean to me was probably when I did something really wrong. <laughs> and it just came out. <laughs> then you knew you were in trouble. Yeah. It's like, I didn't know what mom said, but I, I, I got the... I got the message. I got the message. Um, yeah. And so, like, my language learning... It, because my, my father, he, he wasn't educated. He didn't, he got his GED much later in life, but he was like a high school dropout. My, yeah. my mom was an immigrant. She couldn't speak English when she graduated high school all that well. And she, that was one of the reasons why she joined the military was to learn how to speak English. Wow. And so like I had two people who were not very bookish or anything like that teaching me. And so like the language I learned was pretty much the Navy <laughs> which is the worst kind of English to learn as a little kid because you know you you would you come up with things like oh your piss cutters off you know <laughs> <laughs> that's like a type of hat and like, you know and you know I'm calling other kids like chicken shit or whatever uh, on 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 the playground because I'm just like that's that's yeah, how we talk I'm a sailor <laughs> yeah, yeah two sailors for parents um, but so does from a very early age I started figuring out like oh language is very situational and, which you talk about with Bucky yeah. like he talks about the Korean language there's like the high English version like yeah. shakespearean uh korean and then there's like the sailors yeah. korean that and that's actually very that's really true that's one of the hardest things to learn when you when you're learning korean you have to learn very different registers and it's not like for us like okay the difference between going like speaking for a newscast you have to mm -hmm. be clear um you have to be concise and you have to be polite that's not so alien as opposed to like in in Korea, like every single day, excuse me, like if like one of the if we were sitting now socially drinking, mm -hmm. we don't we don't know each other very well. Um, like part of the things is we would try to figure out, of course, subtly and politely, mm -hmm. is like who's older than whom, who owns the who owns the store, who's the manager of the store, who's the worker of the store. We would um, have way too much fun with this. Yeah, and, then, <laughs> and then based on that, once we figured out the hierarchy of where everyone sits, then the language shifts to, okay, the most polite is spoken to this person, the least polite is spoken to that person. And is speaking impolitely to, <laughs> to Rachel, our social media manager, a way of showing the owner respect? You, by downgrading someone else, it's well, upgrading you would, you someone. Would, you would always be polite, but the register in which you speak, uh -huh. like the, some of the words you choose to even. The formality would be like of it. Formality. extra, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's it's done every day, even like amongst uh, amongst friends. Like if a friend is even like one year older, you're supposed to show a certain level of deference until you're given permission to speak. So they literally will give yeah. you like, hey man, yeah, you can, you can chill uh, out now. Yeah, they they would say like, oh, you can you. The literal translation would be, yeah, uh, half speak is fine. Uh huh. And that sort of like formality is like is completely alien in in American culture. Did you get into trouble ever as you were like learning oh. those levels? Did people like give you the side eye like, oh my god, I can't oh, believe yeah. you just half spoke me? Definitely, definitely, all the time. But. um 
if they knew me in English, then they know, oh, Joe's just a smart ass. So <laughs> they weren't sure if it was ignorance or if it was intentional, but they figured that it, it, it would probably result in the same thing. So but. how about the football background? Were you a running back? No, <laughs> I, I was not a running back. Where does that drive and that passion and love come from? Like what? For drew, football? Yeah, to create yeah. that in your uh, main character. Well, so like my football background, to just clear that out, because I've gotten that question a lot. Like mm-hmm. um, I played peewee. Yeah. And I played uh, a little bit of like middle school football. I was not very good. I mean, you you write like someone who like knows football really well. Thanks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I watched it casually. I will say this. I learned a lot more about football when I was living in Korea because it was the only thing from America that I could watch. Because mm-hmm. what would happen is um, uh, college football on Saturdays would turn out to be like Sunday, Sunday um, morning because of the time difference mm-hmm. over there. I could not watch NFL. I could not watch most of the other sports, but college football was on early in the morning, so I would watch that. That was like the only it's thing. It's kind of like golf, you know, like a golf tournament on a weekend. You just yeah. turn it on or a NASCAR race. You know, it's like just a sound and ambience. So that was your Sunday morning. It's your yeah. CBS Sunday morning. It was my Sunday mornings. It was also that like one thing I wanted. Um, I wanted one thing that I actually kept up with because the longer you live abroad, um, something you learn is that you're like a, I heard this description of, I'm doing a lot of research into spies and stuff for my next book. I'm so excited um, about it. Didn't you get so excited about it? Yes. It's description. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'm doing a lot of research into spies. And like one of the things, I, I, there's a description of the, the the Soviet illegals program. And I don't know if anyone's familiar with that, but the illegals, pro- you remember the show The Americans? Yeah. Like that's based on truth. Like mm-hmm. obviously that's way hyped and all that. Yeah. Um, but there was a really massive program of planting people in the U.S., taking over other people's lives. And they just live here like normal people, but they're actually sleeper agents mm-hmm. and, or they're active doing like small things, trying to get into different levels of American society. One description of them was that whenever these people were sent out, they're like satellites, like everything's frozen in time to that moment when they're sent out, like how they communicate with. And I keep on th- returning to that kind of analogy that even those of us who, when you live abroad, like you are culturally of that moment when you left. Right. So like for me, I didn't learn this until I was visiting like in 20, 2012 or 2013, like a, around that time. And someone was telling me, it's like, dude, like talking to you is like talking to 2007. because like everything like the slang like the mindset Uh like i i missed the entire obama administration like so i left when it was still bush and my whole thinking was still kind of like i'm still protesting the iraq war and everyone in america is like dude like we've moved on we got other things to protest right now man (laughs) um who cares about that and i and I didn't really feel it like starkly until I moved back in 2016 because like I just couldn't get it in my head. Um, I was going to school in Las Vegas and Trump and uh, Hillary were doing did one of their debates at the school. And like for me, like I ha- I really struggled to understand how Trump was going to be there. As I think a, we as a all did. Yeah, but I mean, especially if you have been like. 
yeah. gone and you, yeah. And I didn't really pay attention to the news because I was busy, you know, drinking Somac and trying to learn all that. But yeah, so that's, that's, that's oddly how I was connected to football was like, it was like the one American thing. Like I knew that I could keep up with. It definitely matches your title too. Like, you know, America's pastime is baseball, but it has also, what's more all American than, you know, football. Well, the, the, the original idea for the book, um, I wrote a really bad scene and it was just basically kind of like I was daring, um, one of my teachers at the time who said that, um, a story ends um, once the need is fulfilled. And so I had this idea like, okay, what if this uh, Korean guy went to Korea trying to find his father, found his father, was not very impressed, and then what happens to you then? Um, like the need is met. Uh, and so I wrote, like the, actually the first first part of the book is the guy like actually, the first part I, I wrote that's still part of the book now is him getting pulled off the plane and him ending up in the military in, mm-hmm. in the boot camp mm-hmm. and the idea was that like okay this is like what happens at you know the ever after um unhappily ever after and that wasn't very good when i wrote it and i knew it but later i because I, I was teaching in south korea one of the classes i used to teach was yeah i used to teach american pop culture but i also teach used to teach a class called American culture. Mm -hmm. And um, what I used to teach from was a a State Department academic. I believe he was with the State Department, but it was Robert Coles. And he wrote this thing that I think was a preface for one of his books called The 13 Values Americans Live By. And the State Department used this to prep uh, diplomats coming to the U.S. to try to get them to understand, like, why Americans are so weird. Because (laughs) the minute you live outside and you travel a lot outside of the United States, like, we are really weird. I Um, believe it. And how like, are we most weird? I like want to know. We're the only ones who spend so much time asking, like, what does it mean to be us? English don't. They don't sit around saying, what does it mean to be English? They don't like the French don't. Chinese. No, not really. South Koreans aren't sitting there wondering what does it mean to be Korean? That's pretty clear in in like the cultural's mind and mm-hmm. culture's mind. Of course, there's always arguments and all that. But. Americans, we're obsessed with this idea. We have an entire, like our literary canon, like most of the literary books that we consider like our our high watermarks are about like, what does it mean to be American? American. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, I used to teach this, the American culture class. And it was one of these gen eds. So like all different majors would take take my class. And I would, it was a lecture class because it was like 80 to 100 students which is terrible <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to teach something. You yeah. know, lecture classes are no fun, at least for me. But I had this one day, I think some one of, one of my smart asses asked, like, who actually embodies, like, all these, mm-hmm. these values? Who'd you give it to? To say what? Who'd you give it to? Who who embodies it? I said nobody. Yeah. Nobody. There because a lot of these values are counterintuitive. Like mm-hmm. we have the idea of accident of birth, where we don't respect um that's one of the values that Robert Coles identifies. And the idea of the accident of birth is we're not so supposedly give any credit to someone being born rich. Mm-hmm. Um and that yet, whatever your reality is, you created it. Yeah. Or it was the result of your own effort. Your- yeah. So we don't give credit to the, the accident of birth and we do give credit to the idea of merit, merit of mm-hmm. merit. Mm-hmm. But you can't have merit and accident of birth 
because like they kind of they, they they don't work together once you think them think think them through bill gates could not make microsoft if he was born in a rural trailer park right because he never would have had the the access to things whether mm-hmm. it's the education or whatever um and yet we still have this idea of merit because we have these outlying examples of you know like carnegie or whatever mm-hmm. um so like nobody actually embodies all of these values um and that's later because I had written that one little section. I I just had this idea, like, what would happen if somebody tried to embody, seriously tried to embody all those values? And wow. so I thought about, okay, what would this kid be about? He would be an immigrant because we treasured the idea of immigration. Um, not in practice, but right? I was about <laughs> that's to say theory. In theory, <laughs> the theory yeah. of it, yeah. The the most American person, yeah. Um, then we, what would that sport be? Of course, our most militant sport, which is football, which mm-hmm. is which emulates our our more militaristic tendencies. Mm-hmm. If you really think about it, you yeah. Soldiers, you have captains on the field, mm-hmm. you have the captains on the sideline who control it all, and then you have the people with the money who actually control it all. It's, yeah. Um, it's yeah. We, that's a whole different discussion, but that's where Bucky came from. So, of course, that drive, that drive, that for accomplishment—that's that's all part of a lot of American values. And so, that's why Bucky is the way he is. Is mm-hmm. like my, I imagined, like what would happen if someone truly believed all these values one hundred percent? What would happen? And one of those things is that you can shape your own destiny. And so, like whatever came before is irrelevant. It's what you choose to be, which is, I don't think it's not, it's not our reality. That's yeah. amazing. I love that context for it. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Bucky didn't spend a lot of time. He had some stress about um, being kind of pigeonholed as um, someone who is South Korean living in Washington state. Um, he didn't have a lot of curiosity. Chantal, his classmate, who kind of yeah. has a conflicting <laughs> I relate. love her. I know. <laughs> she shows up and she wants to be in South Korea. Like, yeah. she's like, I needed to figure this out. I needed to have this experience to figure out who I was. Um, and I, she felt like it was missing from her life. What was your experience as a Korean American? You spent nine years in South Korea. Was that something you needed to do to figure out your full identity? Are you more in line with Chantal or are you more in line with Bucky where you just were who you were and you didn't spend a lot of time thinking about whether you needed to flesh out that part of your identity and fully realize what it would be like to be South Korean? Um, I had the benefit of going back and forth to South Korea my whole life um, because I still have family there. Mm-hmm. And um, for me, like one of the hardest parts was I never learned to speak to the language fluently. Like at my best, like I could complain about my job, open a bank account, <laughs> you know, I the, could hang the out. The important things. <laughs> yeah. I could, <laughs> you know, I could hang out in a bar and be... That's the other thing. Like once you get to a certain language uh, ability, you learn that like what we use our, what we use language for is really limited. Yeah. <laughs> and um, when you actually start understanding other conversations, because I don't know, I had this romantic idea, and I don't know if other people do that speak other languages, but I thought that once you learned another language, that it would open up like vast vistas of knowledge or experiences, <laughs> and it just turned out that like 
in the next booth over, someone's talking about a blister <laughs> over here. Someone, like, oh, dang it. <laughs> someone over here is talking about um, how they hate their job. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's all the same it's mundane, pretty, <laughs> the same conversations. <laughs> yeah. And, and um, so I got good enough to do that. But um, as far as like the Korean identity, like one thing that I and I'm sure other Korean Americans will will disagree with me on this one but i think i think a lot of us i think a lot of the first gen generation korean americans who came over from korea they view themselves as 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 korean korean and and they're american secondly um but my experience in korea is that's not how koreans view view them they left they're those satellites. And so like, it's weird, like Korean American culture is like my experience of Korean American culture is almost like looking back into the way Korea was in the 1970s, like those mentalities, like you're, my sense is that when I'm with a group of Korean Americans, they seem to be either completely disavowing like a lot of Korean cultural customs or they're hold on to it way too tightly mm-hmm. so like that idea of like that strict like hierarchy like who's older and stuff mm-hmm. like, my experience a lot of more korean americans are much more apt to like hold on to that whereas in korea in a bar people people are far more relaxed and like yeah whatever thank you for the you know being polite but you know shithead give me another picture yeah um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah is, is is that sort of thing um Am I allowed to cuss on this? Yes. Well, we swear. We swear so much. You ever listen to this podcast? (laughs) You are very tame. And we should probably pour you guys. Yeah. Yes, we should. You too. You can do. I mean, your wife's driving, right? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Speaking of your wife, yeah, she's driving your two children around. You said you have a two and a four-year-old. Yeah. And. Was the book mostly written before your four-year-old was born, or were you? You said you were still getting feedback. Um, so, I I wrote a first draft of this, like a complete first or early draft of the book in 20, 2015, 2014. Okay. And um, with that draft, it was as good as I could make it at that time which it wasn't very good, but I, I, I knew like, okay, this is all I can do now. And I shopped it around and everybody said, no, we're not interested in representing you. And I was like, oh, well, and I was right. I, I wrote a couple other novels in draft form. And then I got into the PhD program actually with this one, which an early draft of this book, which surprised the hell out of me since nobody was interested in uh, representing me as like as an agent. Um, and then I didn't touch it because I didn't, it was, the, it was the first real book I, I tried and I got to the end and I didn't think it was very good and it wasn't very good, but, um, I, I started working on it again in 2018. So like, it was about a good three, four year span where I didn't touch it. And, um, I rewrote the whole thing and around that same time that I finished another draft of it found out we were pregnant i was highly motivated to, <laughs> to finish <laughs> to finish it and i didn't i didn't finish it in in time um <laughs> baby was born and i was still fiddling on it fiddling with it but i'd gotten it to a level where um i was fortunate enough to i we moved to england um because i was offered the david wong fellowship over in right. the university of east anglia and that was based off the first 
think like 50 pages of the book. Um, and when I was there, I was really able to just kind of like get under hood and tinker with it and solve all the final problems. And yeah, but that was with, yeah, my daughter. A actually, baby in tow. Yeah, I had one of those slings. And so when, it, when I would give, I would give my wife like time so she could take a nap or so we could mm-hmm. sleep through the night. And like, I don't, a- anybody who has kids, like your entire sleep pattern is destroyed. Yo, yeah. And like, <laughs> you you're up at like three in the morning trying to feed the baby and you're perfectly awake. You can't go back to sleep. And so what I was doing is, um, yeah, Joan, my, my, my baby daughter at that time was into sling and I'm sitting there working on my novel. That's so cool. And, um, like a during diaper, like after diaper changes, yeah. I, would, I would sit there and I'd be reading to her parts of my book. Oh my God. And, um, and sometimes I took feedback because <laughs> she would scream. Like, when, <laughs> like, okay, okay, point taken. Yeah, but I mean, I, I don't know. Like, it, because because I was so sleep deprived, I was thinking like, okay, she was screaming during this part, so I better look at that scene again. That's and, wild. Um, I think it was just sleep deprivation. Yeah. And, um, yeah, but yeah, I wrote, yeah, I finished the book with, with, a, with a baby. That's uh, pretty cool. That says a lot. So how did you, what was the sort of the, um, you initially wanted to be a filmmaker. What what sort of switched for you that you went on this path of creative writing? Oh, um, my uncle, he got me a subscription to Creative Screenwriter after I graduated college and as I was getting ready to move to Korea. I don't remember why. It was like a birthday gift or whatever. And he he was a filmmaker for a long time. Um, like doing independent films and stuff. And then eventually he wanted to make a living. Um, so <laughs> he, he got into like um, other, th- other things, but he got me the subscription and I read, I, I had, I had written a script and it wasn't, it wasn't any good. I knew it wasn't any good. And that's because that's the first thing you d- really develop when you're trying to get into any of this. You, you love stories, you love books, you love this and you develop, you know, I think Ira Glass talked about it, this idea of you develop taste and yep. then you're <laughs> able to look at your work and you're able to say like, I really like it, but it's not yeah. any good. I and hear, I hear it. Yeah. It's you, like a rhythm. Yeah. And you're like, I know what I wanted to do, but I don't know how to do it yet. Yeah. And if you're, hopefully mature enough and you can get enough of your ego out of the way you can look at it and not not take it personally but look at it as like i, I want to make this good how do i make this good mm-hmm. and that's when you start reading up like all your favorite authors right. and everybody like how do they write and mm-hmm. um a, as a tip don't believe any of us we, we make stuff up and we intentionally screw with each other by the advice we give <laughs> <laughs> like hemingway never wrote standing up that's that's complete BS, and definitely not after two martinis. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I mean, no way. Um, and I, what happened was, I, I read in Creative Screenwriter that somebody said that, like, okay, if you're really struggling with the script, the easiest way to do this and get your movie made is to write it like a book. Pros, it's way easier. You'll work out all your problems. It's way easier to sell than a screenplay. And then when it comes time to sell your screenplay, you already had it. Yeah, you it's, just have to adapt it. It's just adapted, and not even yeah. You adapt your screenplay, and then when they buy the film rights, you just give them your screenplay, and ta-da! You get your film made. You get a book. Which you is have really, everything all in one. Yeah, it's, you know, it's like why why double the effort and like writing books? That's way easier than a screenplay. <laughs> um, and I was just 
I was just naive enough to kind of believe it. And I was like, okay, yeah, okay, I got this book time. Yeah, I'm going to sit down and write a book. It'll be awesome. Um, and I sat down and I started writing. I, I started writing after I taught classes. I got off at like 10 o'clock at night. And I probably went to the bar first, practice my Korean and come home like after, <laughs> after a few beers and me being like, yeah, yeah, this is the time. Let's I'm go. Write my note. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> and I sat down and I started writing and I didn't stop until way after the sun was up. And it was the first time I had done anything in my life that, and I just wanted to keep going. Oh, I wanted so to keep cool. on going. And it didn't matter if it was bad. It was just like, I love this shit so much. <laughs> I love it so much better than the idea. Like whenever you're writing a screenplay, you're, 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 for, for me at least, I could never break past this idea that I'm writing it for a whole bunch of people and trying to write it in a way so they don't change it. Mm. Whereas when I was writing the prose, like I am, I don't know, I had this, I have this belief that what we do is truly telepathy. And because when you go through that experience reading, like with your eyes, you're not hearing the voices, you get to a point where that's gone and you're getting something that's not just images. It's not just, these are thoughts. Mm -hmm. And like that is, it's so much more intimate. And it's, it, when you have this moment where you believe like I wrote something that is pretty close to the sense that I had in my head and can go into someone else's head mm -hmm. and it would be a if it'll be imperfect, it'll probably be something even different and cooler. And I don't have to worry about them fucking it up on the, on, on the yeah, screen. Will, will they make, will the actor make you feel what I can just tell you in a paragraph it, is internally it, happening in the character? Not just that, like not everyone sitting around having a powwow, like what, what is this, what is this feeling supposed to be? But everyone experiences it in their mm -hmm. own way. It's mm -hmm. kind of like cutting that whole mm -hmm. middle person yeah. idea of. You're dropping them right in Bucky's head. Well, I love yeah. the creative work of reading, right? Like, yeah. You know, like when I envision like um, communes or like the different yeah. place, you know, I have an idea in my head of what that looks like and who those people and, are. And communes is a real place. Right. And oh, is it really? Yeah. Um, and, you know, so it's like I think that's cool that you can cre you create something and it lives in your head. Right. But like we all we are experiencing it and we're experiencing the story too but in our own creative yeah. way in your own exactly yeah. that's that's the point so it's like it's, we're all participating in this dream rather than i feel like when you're looking at a film like that dream is like it's stated like this is this is the producer's dream it's kind of dictated for you right yeah. and the story can still be beautiful but yeah I, i'm not yeah. i'm not i mean i love film i mean that's what got yeah. me into all of this but when i had that epiphany like why do i love doing this so much um, I don't know. It just matched, like, as far as art forms, this is the one that matched me. Um, That's really cool. Excuse me. And, you know, the only thing that... Yeah, it's, it, it, it was cool because when that hit me, it also was the first time in my life where I said, like, this is what I'm going to do until I'm dead. Oh, that is so cool. That's what we're going to do. We're going to sell your book until we're dead. <laughs> Yay! We're all in the stream together. <laughs> That's what it feels like. That's what it feels like to me, but in a totally different way. Like I really love hearing people talk about writing because I, when you were describing like how you, you know, when you want to write and you feel like you have, I feel like I have pretty good taste. Yeah. Right. Like I know good writing and good storytelling when I see it, when I read it. But then when I'm trying to write it, I'm like, Ugh! Yeah. like what I have here, what I, what I have in my heart is not like 
I can't quite get it to do what I want it to do. And I, then I just abandon it. And, and that's a scary, like this morning, like the, I'm, I'm working on, on, on my new book and the, like today I had just a couple hours and it was just, it was like trying to shit a pool table. And, <laughs> I mean, we just was, like stare at the blank screen. <laughs> but I mean, you're, you're sitting there and you're, 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 you write a paragraph and you're like, none of this is staying. I don't know what the hell that is. And it's, it's absolute, absolute garbage. But if you just, if you step back and you're like, okay, but that, that's, this is fine. As long as you keep on reminding yourself, like, and all of it can be fixed. And I like that. All of this can be fixed. All of this can just be don't fixed. Don't overthink it. Don't. Yeah. You just throw it out there because it needs to be there. You, you don't know why you don't know where it's going to go. It might not be for this book. It might be for something else, <laughs> but it needs to go out. It needs to be written down. And the longer that you stall that you just, you just got to keep on putting it out. Um, and abandoning it sometimes like when you need to abandon it is when you just keep on repeating yourself. That's when you need to stop and take a walk. Yeah. But really it's just, if you just consider like every book is X amount of hours and you never know when those hours fall in, in your whole writing time, yeah. but you just understand that like each book is going to be X amount of hours. You sit there, you give it, you give it those hours and you know, it's going to be complete at some point. And even if it's complete, it might not be any good. And that's fine too. Um, because you can put it in a full, in a, in a file and it'll live there. And if someday you figure out how to make that work, you can always pull it out. Yeah. But if you think of yourself as a writer and this is what you love to do and you're going to love to do this until you're dead or whatever, that this is just something you do, then it doesn't really matter anymore if you have bad days or even good days because this is just what you do. And you hope you get more wins and losses. Um, I have two or three drafts of books that I don't know if we'll ever live to um, see the light of day. Like I used to have a folder I called the the – the folder of abandoned children. Oh. Um, <laughs> it was just, and um, I would pull, pull. I would look through there every once in a while. Your children are gonna find that someday and be like, "Dad, what have you been hiding from us?" <laughs> yeah, well, it got a little, it got a little too grim because I kept it on my uh, on my desktop, and I was like, "I can't do this to myself." Because you feel guilty every yeah. time you look at it. Because we have this weird um, sense of like, okay, it doesn't matter unless it's completed, mm. and that's not true because you need all these all these missteps in order to get to something complete. And just because you complete it and God forbid is published, like it doesn't mean that it's, it's any good. I mean, there's a lot of writers who like they, they complete novels. And I think if they hadn't already completed a couple of novels before that, that novel would not be out there. Right. Um, yeah. And you're thinking like, it is not a thing like, Oh, can this be fixed? But it's just, sometimes it's not, it's not there and that's fine. Um, that's at least this is what I tell myself to keep the keep, keep going forward. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of like just being okay with like the just rolling with it and accepting that you're going to write garbage sometimes. Yeah. The only, the only key part about when you're writing the garbage is you keep on writing it until you get to the point where you're like, okay, because you got to give yourself guardrails Mm-hmm. And because you don't know if it's just a bottomless pit of garbage or if it's just like, right. if it's just this section. So rather than abandoning it, if you say, like one thing I do is I talk to myself. I talk to myself a lot. I was an only child. So, um, <laughs> and I, now I talk to my kids all the time. They're like, dad, I don't care. It's not about a unicorn. Um, <laughs> um, 
but you, you give yourself, you're like, okay, this is my plan for tomorrow, or this is my plan for today. Or you talk to yourself like, why isn't this working? Like, I don't know. Um, maybe because Chantel hasn't flipped them off in this scene. Mm-hmm. Um, or you, you just start putting like random characters in there to talk to each other and talk to you like, Hey, what's missing here? And it's like, well, clown, you, you forgot that this is a, this is a story where things happen. Not just you talk about all the, mm-hmm. the history that's mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you mean? It's like, we don't care about the different formations of wingback in football. <laughs> that you read about in this, <laughs> in this in your research book we care about and then you know these weird kind of conversations that at least i have for it with myself like why is this garbage why is it not working why do i feel like and what what do i feel like it needs to happen i don't know that's like one of the like you're your the own therapist i think my characters do a lot of therapy for me yeah um i i, I mean that's that's the way i feel like Maybe it's a little bit of schizophrenia that we all kind of share. Um, it may be writing, writing out those pieces of ourselves would be really therapeutic. Yeah, yeah. maybe. I've, I've always kind of pushed against this idea that writing is therapy because um, I know too many people who write and they're just miserable. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know why. I'm always laughing because I find it hilarious, like all the bad things I, I, I make happen, um, which is terrible because, you know. You're like your own little god. Like, yeah, well, exactly. Like, you know, sometimes you're like, okay, like, Bucky, what do you not want to happen? He's like, oh, man, just let me let, let this plane take off. Man. I know. It's so bad. <laughs> it was like, so bad. And I'm thinking like, oh, that's exactly what we are not going to do today. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Um. So I believe I asked, "How'd you get to Iowa?" Oh, what yeah, are you yeah. doing? What are you doing here? So I was in um I was in England when the pandemic hit, and in the beginning, um, Europe started re- reacting very much quicker than England. England didn't do anything initially, um, and then they actually started running some numbers, and they figured like, oh God like it's going to go terribly. Mm-hmm. So they did this extreme lockdown um where we weren't even a, like a lot we were supposed to be outside for a, for a maximum of an hour a day. Wow. And they had cops like going around these poor cops trying to enforce that sort of thing. But um bless the English like they were pretty compliant. Yeah. Which I just could not imagine that here. No. no. I mean there is so ugh, we but, won't revisit. Yeah, but um, so I was there, and um, my book wasn't done yet. Like I hadn't had, I didn't have an agent. I didn't have like I thought I I had a pretty a uh, tight version of the book, but I I didn't know what I was gonna do because typically when I, I thought like we would travel around Europe for a bit like there would be other like fellowships and I would get more opportunities to keep on working on this thing and with the pandemic everything shut down and and, like I'm there I'm stuck in England um I was really fortunate to have um have this fellowship but my visa was running out and I didn't have anywhere to go like I could come back to the U.S. but where Mm -hmm. um I can't really go back to Korea because they're trying to react to, to sure. COVID. So it was this really scary moment where I was thinking like, oh my God, what, what am I going to do with myself? 
Um, and I started applying for jobs and all the jobs just like, I was getting these rejections where it's like, we're not rejecting you. We're just closing the job because all jobs are, are, are closed <laughs> except for Iowa, oh. where, <laughs> where there was this, um, this was actually only one of like a couple of jobs I applied that was like a real honest God assistant professorship because I was like, what the hell? It's still, yeah. it's like, a, it's a, it's a job that's open and I'm not qualified to do it. But maybe. Well, I mean, you are. Like, look at you. At at that moment, though, <laughs> I, I I had no job. I had just like no 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 book, no agent. <laughs> um, and typically, if you're going to teach creative writing, you should have a book. Um, but I was thinking, like, what the hell is like one of two jobs out there, and they don't believe in the pandemic. <laughs> And I got the job. I even remember I was I was supposed to fly over, but um, I even had my tickets bought. But like two or three days before I was supposed to fly, my uh, my school said like um, you're not allowed. My school in England said you're not allowed to leave your neighborhood, man. You're not you're not getting on a plane. Like what? the authorities are already not- like notifying like all flights will be canceled and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so I had to call, like, I thought like, oh, there's no way I'm going to get this job now. I can't even fly out there. Right. But, um, that was like, I did the first like online teaching, like demo, all that kind of stuff. Like nobody knew Zoom. Like we're using like cell phones and, <laughs> and like, uh, Skype, like yeah. remember Skype. Wow. Um, and then they thought, they thought I was funny enough and they're like, yeah, yeah, sure. We'll, we'll have this <laughs> this guy from England. <laughs> That's how I ended up in Forest City, and I'm I'm so so grateful because. Um when I was in Korea, I taught in a lot of universities and I was teaching EFL and ESL. So that's a different topic. Um and I was here, you know, I did graduate school um in Vermont and in, in Las Vegas. And so I've been around a lot of academic departments, but I noticed that like, at least at my school here in Iowa, like these were the nicest people I'd ever worked with in my life. Iowa and nice. Iowa nice. <laughs> um, even though most of them were Texans, but. Really? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, honestly, like. Uh, the corn seeped into them. Maybe. I mean, the people, the people were nice. The, and that is worth a lot. Mm-hmm. That is worth so much. And like my neighborhood, like, yeah, it's, it's, it's I'm, I'm in a pretty rural spot of Iowa. <laughs> you are. <laughs> but, um. The town's clean. My neighborhoods are, my neighborhood's nice. Like when I left Vegas before we moved to England, I remember it was, I had like two or three weeks before we were going to move or a month and I was going to go pick up my wife and my daughter from the hospital. So I'd, I'd come back home, picked up some stuff, slept the night there at, at the apartment and I got out and this day I'm picking, I'm going to bring them home and I find nine millimeter shell cases mm. by my, by my car. Now, Ugh. My first, because I grew up in a in a military kind of rural enough area, I was thinking like, oh, someone kicked out their jackets like and didn't clean mm-hmm. them up. Mm-hmm. There was no shooting range where I was at. Mm-mm. It was pure. It, people weren't driving home from the shooting range. It was like this was gunfire in the parking lot of my apartment mm-hmm. that I didn't notice because of just because I lived there long enough where it was just like you, you know, just hear things. Wow. Yeah, like you always hear sirens. You always hear about. Um, you always hear that kind of stuff. There's always the repo men outside. Like, wow. Um, and you just, you just get kind of comfortable with it. And that was something that when I was writing, writing the all American, I wanted to kind of convey that like, you know, 
like Bucky grows up in a pretty rough neighborhood, mm-hmm. but there are good families there. Right. Yep. There's a strong sense of like, yeah, I might, it might be in the ass of Lion Mountain, but this is our park. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a certain level of pride in that. And I guess for me, like I had that sudden mind shift where I'm like, I'm about to bring home a baby and I'm, I'm not even noticing that. Mm-hmm. So like moving to a place like Forest City, Iowa, like I did my crime sur- research. <laughs> it's COVID. So, you know, you're you have time on your hands. Time. Crime rates in Forest City. <laughs> yeah, and, and like the, the first thing that popped up was like um, this guy, it was like someone getting arraigned for, for stealing a, a, a riding lawnmower. Oh my God. <laughs> Does the, everyone drive around on golf carts in Forest yeah. City? Yes. Oh my God. That's it's, like a North Central Iowa thing. Yeah. And it's like, it's like, 14 year old kids too and i know like, and they actually drive okay which is like which i'm like that's not right a 14 year old should be like you know playing like death metal and like yeah. you know two two middle fingers up as you're like trying to do donuts in your golf yes. cart yes yeah my husband is from you, you probably know where brit is oh yeah okay so he went to high school in brit he's from canal which is like just south of brit and my kids are obsessed with going to canal even though there's like nothing there but a gas station yeah because they can ride around golf cart grandma's golf cart and my uh, 10-year-old son is always like, how come Jay, who's my 14-year-old, gets to have a driver's permit because I can drive a golf cart better than she can. <laughs> okay. That's, yeah. Yeah. It's it's just, it's weird. Like when I saw all the golf carts and the little scooters and stuff. Yeah. It's a moments, totally different, yeah, it's a different thing. Like, yeah. And I like, I see like, like some of my, um, some of the kids in my classes now, they're, they're from the area and they talk about like yeah i was doing my homework in in this tractor but you know <laughs> like sorry that's kind of messy over here because my handwriting or whatever and i was like what do you mean you're doing it in a tractor like shouldn't you be driving the tractor it's like no nah, man so it's They're self-driving it's self-driving and i was like yeah yeah, like it's it's a it's a completely different universe to like anywhere I've lived before. It's kind of a really it's so flat up there, but it's this it there's like a beauty to that part of the state. Well, we have pilot knob. You do. It's a knob. You, it's yes, a knob. You got a knob. There is a knob. Um yeah, I, I, I actually I do have uh I have an affinity for Forest City because it is it is it is like I was there maybe a week and people like knew who I was. Yeah. yeah. It's a small town. <laughs> um, and, but a lot of people like there was a, there was a kid, a half Korean guy who grew up there. Um, and I worked with his, his mother, but anyways, they, a lot of people mistaken, mistake me for him. That's kind of cool. It, it is. And, well, it and is. also not cool. <laughs> but I mean, if he's younger than you, he is, take it. He is, yeah. That's what I'm going to say. He's younger than me. And so like people would see me like pushing around this kid and they're like, you got a baby? You got a baby? I'm like, oh no. <laughs> you know, so it made a little bit of the gossip. <laughs> um, and of course, you may have a couple of open bar tabs, but they Yeah, I love that. But, um, uh, that's really cool. So, how did, with this kind of like rich background that you've worked into your book, but also that you've lived, how do you feel about your kids growing up Iowan? I. I have never, okay, so I teach composition and I have like 
there's kids from from my town some of them are from the high school doing like one of these um dual credit sort of mm-hmm. programs and i think that's wonderful and one of the pro- one of the things i do to help students do this idea of analysis is everyone takes out their keys and we shuffle them up and i i i move the keys around and this is after i demonstrate it but they're supposed to figure out what what kind of person has these keys Ooh, cool. so based on like what kind of car they're driving or you know is there gym locker keys is it just a house key like what sort of tags are on there is it a bunny rabbit or is it like a grateful dead sticker or something you know that's yeah. so fun and anywhere i've been anywhere i've done this it's always been a hit like it, it works it's a really simple little exercise and it's cool it makes you really think and it starts makes you you know, think hard, like, why do I believe this? Because you have to write this out. I cannot do it in my town. Is it too monotonous? No. Most of the kids don't have keys. Yeah. They don't carry keys. I'm like, what What do you mean? They How got their you- on their golf cart. They push a button. No, but I mean. Nobody locks the doors. No one. No one. No, my mother-in-law will go away for weeks at a time and not lock her doors. No one locks her doors. And I'm like, what about your car? They're like. They'll leave it running. Yeah, they'll leave it running and they'll leave the keys. <laughs> That's what I do, you guys. So when we, not that Ames is a big city, but when um, my husband and I had our first apartment together here, um, his car got uh, broken into because he left it unlocked. and But thankfully it didn't get stolen because the keys were in the ignition. Yeah, and it's like, dude, you can't do that here. <laughs> but that's what everybody does there. They just leave it. They leave their keys yeah. in the car. But you know, it was also like there's also that sense that like everyone would know who's doing it. Yeah. So like two weeks later, like your mom will yeah get a call or that's why I tell my kids every bad thing I ever did growing up, someone saw it and told my parents. So <laughs> like it's it's you know there have been some dramas. You know, that my kids have gotten into because my kids are older, uh, 14 and 14 and 15. And I'm just telling them, like, who do these people think they are? Like, you think nobody's going to find out? Like, everybody's going to know. Everybody (laughs) knows everybody. It's like, what's that? There's always a connection. It's one degree of separation in Iowa. Yeah. And it's like... So you're getting to you like that (laughs) or you don't like that for your kids? I I have never lived in a spot where I didn't have things stolen mm, or mm-hmm. had things broken into. Wow. Like I've ha- I've lost plenty of like I've had car stereos stolen mm-hmm. um even like when everything's locked up even if, if you have the oh god what was it what was it called oh the, the thing the, on your yeah oh god what was it called the, I know the lock or yeah. the it was it was some stupid name um and there's nothing more insulting than when someone used to break into your car, they would steal your stereo, but not your CDs. I know. And, and you'd be like, whoa, how did how did NWA age out already? Yeah. Like, Why don't you like the Backstreet Boys? Yeah. Black and blue. But um, so like for me, I'm, I'm thinking about my kids, just like this idea that my kids would actually, that's the other thing, like everybody knows each other. Mm-hmm. I actually know my neighbors. Mm-hmm. I've never lived in a spot where you really, you, you would know, like I was fortunate, like, um, in, in my Navy town, like I knew my, my, my neighborhood, but I didn't know like neighbors, like on the other side of the road. Right. Here is like, I, you know, I have people telling me some, somebody's business from the other side of the town, which I have no context of like who this is, but, um, because they, 
they parked that red truck over <laughs> on that plot on that plot of land that they shouldn't be parking it on. <laughs> I love people's problems. It's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know, like all the problems I hear, like in my small town, like, of course, everywhere has their, has their own unique problems. But like for the f- first time, like, I don't, I don't, I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old and there's this big space in the backyard where they can run around. And the only thing that only trouble they're going to get into is either falling while they're yep, chasing the deer their knee. Mm-hmm. or maybe knocking over a, a neighbor's flower pot which they would think is adorable because they're little enough and cute enough (laughs) um i could not do that anywhere else i've lived and i think that's that's really endearing and i don't like whenever my students talk complain about living in iowa it's always like the typical like small town thing is like and it's like well you would be if you were in the city you'd be too broke to be doing anything anyways Mm -hmm. well and there's there is a charm there's like an ease to it and when we you know when we go stay with my husband's family, like my my middle son is going there for a week at the end of the month and it's his favorite time of the year. Yeah. And I'm like, well, what do you do? Like, well, grandma works all week. What do you do? He's like, I walk to the yes way. I get yeah. some snacks. <laughs> I go hang out at the park. <laughs> and he just walks the town like, you know. And how many places can you just let your kid go, you know, go and yeah, they're going to be okay. That's the other thing. Like you see roving bands of kids. That's so cool. And you don't think like when in Vegas, you, you saw a roving. <laughs> <laughs> What's happening? <laughs> like, like they're on the run. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and it's such a shame that like. Whose um, CDs did they steal? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's nothing like the the mixtape. Like that's yeah. how you showed love yeah. in the '90s. Like that, because I have still have like burned CDs from my when she left for like my my best friend in high school went to college yeah. in Ohio, and she would send me like burned CDs. <laughs> Yeah, and I still have all of them. But I mean, I just remember that effort of like yeah. with the with the with the so tape because you're sitting yeah. there waiting, you're listening to the radio, and like up next, and you're like, yeah. all right, I'm ready. My it's like my son gets pissed if he if he watches a show and there's commercials. It's like, dude, yeah, <laughs> like, my, this is how it was. Yeah. I don't like ads. That's what he yeah, said. My kids freak out if like you, if I can't like fast forward it. Like, <laughs> this is live TV. Yeah, yeah. Like they, they, like they're watching football. Like if we were watching a football game or something, yeah. or a baseball game, they're like, "This is boring. Let's change it." It's like you, you don't. This no, is when you go to the bathroom. This is when you get your snacks. Yeah. Uh-huh. Refill. <laughs> Let the dog out. I remember watching shows with my family, and then like someone, you know, you'd be in the kitchen getting a snack, and someone would yell, "It's back on!" Then you'd run and like. Jump over the couch. <laughs> you won't miss anything. <laughs> well, we should promote Joe's event. Yes. Um, we'll be inviting all of the people who have purchased your book to date um, because we have cool customer history. But um, <laughs> so if you've bought Joe's book, The All American, um, please come see him. We'll be hosting him on Thursday, August 31st at 7 p.m. If you go to joggeredbooksaims.com and go to our author series tab, you can click on the Cocktails and Convos page we have for Joe and um, purchase a ticket. If you don't already have a book, this is amazing. We were talking about this. I love this book. Okay, this is my... This is not a complaint to you. This is a complaint to Governor Reynolds. Your book would be amazing high school English read. Yeah. But he had sex. 
And did you know that kids don't have sex in high school anymore? It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. They don't think about it. They don't do it. Um, And, oh, side note. Uh, Rachel wants everyone to know that if you can't make the event on the 31st, we will have a stack of books that Joe will be signing if you would like us to ship to anywhere in the U.S., even internationally, depending on Rachel's fancy fingers and what they can find for shipping. We've sent to Puerto Rico and Canada before. And the U.K. And the U.K. So um, just want people to know that if you can't make it, we can still get you a signed copy and we will have signed copies after this, at the store afterwards. But yeah, I think this would be... Um, an amazing read for a high school age kid as well as an adult um, because I just think it's kind of like this wake-up call, this reality check to um, how we perceive people's immigration status. Yeah. What actually happens to someone when they're deported? What does that look like? I mean, it's so jarring reading it because I, you know, I used to, yeah, I used to teach kids that age and I think about a kid that age being yeah. completely just taken out of their family and and put somewhere where they have no like frame of reference and so i don't know it was like that, i mean when i was coming up and i started like showing like an interest in reading like english teachers bless bless them trying to find something but they would always right. hand me like amy tan yeah and i mean the joy luck club to a 15 year old dude trying to <laughs> learn how to do donuts in yeah a, in a car in a parking lot or is not no is, is not going to match and i was i was really trying to write about that and also like there's this immigrant narrative that is really popular that um is well done by others but i hadn't read this idea of like immigration is a exceptionally difficult thing and becoming american isn't necessarily like the end goal to it it's about finding a better life and that better life might not always be in America. Right. And there's also very little discussion about deportation other than like it happens to the quote unquote people that shouldn't be here, which is, it's, it's, which is insane anyways. It really uh, helps illustrate how flawed that system is and how dehumanizing yeah. it is the way Bucky was treated as he was a lot and of as that, a child i mean a child yeah a lot of that he's a child unfortunately is so like to, to be very clear that like people people like people who are brought it to the u.s like as adoptees born after 2001 are automatically made citizens people before that um are not automatically made citizens and so something as simple as like a check bouncing so the the process is incomplete like this could happen and it has happened um a lot of the like the that's the dick. Um, yeah, <laughs> I couldn't help it. You had to. I How had. could you not? Um, but that is actually based on a lot of the research I did when I was in Vegas. I, I, I had friend. I had an immigration lawyer friend who would tell me stories about things that were happening to her, her clients, and a lot of that stuff that I wrote in there is what I found in research. And yeah, it's it's publicly known and yet it's not in our consciousness um yeah i think the treatment of, Im of immigrants is is abhorrent i think just like a lot of the politics surrounding immigration is is, is absolutely insane like mm -hmm. you have people like al almost all of these people want to be here for to work 
work mm-hmm. to work mm-hmm. like, yeah. and you don't want them here to work and, and, and our unemployment just... or our inability to fill employment openings in this country jobs that people don't want to do that we're turning people away like you can there are so many jobs that are yeah. filled by immigrants and the gratitude we should have well, for the people who work so hard. And it's not just that, like, like all the, like for me, and this is, this is my, my soapbox, but like the way we set up our immigration is to encourage undocumented immigration mm-hmm. so that they are not paid right. fair wages. Right. So they could be taken advantage of, um, and then deported when they're no longer needed. Um, what happens to use Bucky, and abuse? Yeah. Yeah. What happens to Bucky is like just, you know, that bureaucratic thing where um, we don't have as much control as we would like to have. Well, and they're also not willing to look as, at Bucky as an individual. Yeah. They, they just lump him into this category of they don't look at his case individually. Well, I mean, as far as they're concerned, he, here's this guy who is who is disturbing the peace. Like uh-huh. there's this guy, like, I mean, what uncle Rick does is bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, but also it's, kind of funny to read, but bad. Yeah. yeah it's just, it's just, um, uncle Rick. Uncle Everybody Rick. has an uncle Rick. Yeah. But you know, even when he goes into Cedic and he's bed 42, I think is what it is. It's like he, he even starts to identify himself in that way. Like, oh, the, I don't even have a name anymore. Like, I don't, I'm not even, like, that, a person and, and anymore. That, and that actually does happen. Yeah. And that's also the same sort of strategies that, like, in South America, like, when uh, dictatorships would try to dehumanize their opposition and put them in jails, like, that's the kind of shit that they would do. It's horrible. Um, and we do it, too, which is mm-hmm. which is appalling. Um but I wanted to say one thing about the about the about the sex scene. Yeah, tell me. That was that was the first sex scene I've ever written. Um, <laughs> I haven't gotten to it yet. Is it good? It's good. Okay. I mean, it's it's well it's well written because it also is an entry point. This is a reason to have a sex scene in a book for a high school student because he's reflecting on. Did I enjoy that? Did I want that? Because a boy thinks any sex is good sex. Yeah. But did it, it was his first experience. Did it end up being what he wanted? And how did he feel about it? Did I even want that to happen? It was like almost flipping flipping the story on did the boy consent? Yeah. And I mean, part of the reason why I wanted to do that is um, because I had never read that. And also I know that um, sex is way more complicated than like what we tell young men that it's, it's about. Yeah. And, um, I know there was actually like, that was one of the things that I I went back and forth with, um, different people who are, who worked on the book, um, editors and, you know, they like the question is like, okay, could we, if we don't have this in the book, we could probably get it to high school students. If we have this in the book, then we can't. I think it loses integrity when you don't tell the true story that's like in Bucky's true story. And and that was, and that was my choice. And that's the, and that's the choice I stood by because I thought like, you know, here's a guy and like the, the, the backbone of the story is this idea of like how much control do we as individuals have versus everywhere else. And I feel like every, every American story that we, that I've read, I've been told like, this is like a pinnacle of what we are. These characters have so much control over their outcomes and there's so little acknowledgement to the control we don't have and how do you grapple with that disparity of our identities like the identity that we don't control 
and something as intimate as sex and something as, a, as essential in a coming of age story as sex. Um, it's often glossed over because of, you know, we, stupid political. See, reasons. no, hear, no, speak, no. Like, yeah, supposedly if, if you ignore it, it doesn't exist. But yeah. hey, well, guess what? If the good I thing were, is- if I were still teaching high school, I would have it in my classroom library. Yeah. And then, you know, come at me. But mm-hmm. Um, the blessing that we have is we're independent bookstore owners. So when kids, kids come read this book, as I can say, you know, there's a sex scene, but this is a true reflection of a high school boy's experience. Like it's yeah. the full range of his experience because I don't know what the statistics are these days. I don't know that kids accurately report their sexual activity, but they're all doing something or they're watching something or they're wishing something was happening. So it's important. It, we can't ignore it. And I'm glad you included it because I feel like it's a truer story. And I mean, you're you're teaching some high schoolers too, it sounds like. Yeah. And you know, like in my experience with teaching high schoolers and even middle schoolers, and what I find one of the thing, one of the many things I find appalling about that legislation is that it doesn't give kids credit at all. Yeah. For what they're able to, they have the capacity to have nuanced conversations about complicated topics. Especially like, complicated topics it. that they are interacting with anyway. Exactly. Yeah. And they actually, when you do that, when you bring them those, they will rise to the occasion. That's when they're the most engaged. Yeah. And it's like you're stripping a teacher's ability to get, to give kids the content that they really want to engage with. Yeah. I mean, as a, as a, as a teacher, like the... All the recent re- legislation, like in toto, is just is it, it. It's weird because on the one hand, you have people trying to say like we're trying to protect our kids and teach them, you know, not to prevent indoctrination, and yet by not teaching these kids all these different topics, you are indoctrinating them into. <laughs> yeah. It's 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 that circular reasoning. Yeah, and it's appalling to anybody who's who's taught or thought deeply. And, um, I think a lot of it has less to do even about the topic. It's, it's very much a tribal sense of let's dunk one on the opposition. It's Mm -hmm. not even, it doesn't even matter what it's about. Mm -hmm. And, um, like I, I know like one of the things like a critical race theory is banned to be taught by any school that receives funding from the state of Iowa. Mm -hmm. Um, but, I would really struggle to think of a situation where anybody would was actually teaching critical race theory outside of like graduate school because that's really complicated. You know, you need a lot of foundational thinking before you can approach that um, because it's, it's it's really deep interrogation of like what's happening. Now, once that was passed, it's like okay, since nobody's already teaching this, what are you really trying to prevent? It's like anything that you know speaks about racism mm-hmm. yep and that that code is like okay you i have these classrooms of kids who are grappling with these issues already mm-hmm. because who uh, unless you're living a very kind of like specially sheltered 16 year old life like we're all like by the time you're 16 17 you've experienced just about you've had a glimpse of all this stuff in one manner or another yep and to shelter and try to pretend that that's not happening and that like, okay, the books that they read, like, I don't know. I, I, I get really upset because 
I know that the shit that the student, my students are looking at on TikTok or whatever is far more. <laughs> yes, it yes. Is. Ellen talks about this all the time. Your kid has a smartphone. Yeah. Like, I would, it's yeah, so much worse I than the books. I taught middle school and I'd be like, my greatest battle was a smartphone. And then I'm like, these parents are so mad about the books, yet they yeah. give their kids access to, to something that is ob- objectively speaking far worse. Like. Yeah, and I mean, it's 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 preying upon their attention. It's not giving them the benefit of like expanding the dialogue, like in innately. Like I, even a bad book takes concentration to read. Right. Right. And you're going to have an opinion. Like even if you're complaining about a bad book, like your reasons for why this is a bad book is far more like I think intellectually challenge, challenging than like that was a bad thirty seconds of TikTok. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 100%. 100%. Um, it's a, you know, it's upsetting to think about like books like yours that, you know, would very much benefit, you know, kids of that age and them not being able to have access to that in a school. But I also think like all the cool stuff is not you, you're, you're banned. So that's that was also yeah. one of my arguments. True. I don't know my public. Let's get me. your book you know banned. <laughs> also have a display in the store. Teenagers, here's the books they don't want you to read. <laughs> yeah. Okay, one thing that we can talk about um, that is lighthearted and not about um, book banners is what are you reading right now? Oh, God. Yeah. So, well, first, cheers. 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 To Soju. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I should mention that we will have a Soju cocktail at our Cocktails and Convos with Joe. And the All-American. Um, we also have beer. So if you want a Somac, you can have a Somac. Or you can have a cocktail, a cucumber cocktail made with soju. The the cocktail will be delicious. Okay. Um, so I always have I'm, – I'm one of those weird people that I, I'm, I'm, like, dipping in, like, 10, 12 books at a time. That is really um, weird. Tell us about the 12 <laughs> books that you're reading. Uh, no, I, I mean, I have, I have friends who are, like, really disciplined who are like, I only read one book beginning to end and then i moved to my next book i used to very much be that way and i mean i really appreciate them because um they i don't know they seem they're remarkable. reading for pleasure you're reading for work i don't know like you're I, a professional I, that's my excuse I, yeah. I'm, I'm gonna write that i'm a motor. professional <laughs> but <laughs> I know how to do this. um Right now, like just di- like on like on like a digital form, yeah. so I'm reading The Orphans of Davenport, which I just found out about. Okay, and cool. That book is about um, people who had different disorders who were sterile, forcibly sterilized oh. here in here really? in Iowa. Really? Is yeah. it fiction or nonfiction? Nonfiction. Oh Lord. Okay. I mean, I would assume that it was based really on real history either way, but. Yeah. Yeah. And um, also, I just finished Standoff, and I'm reading another one about, oh, where is it? Um, You're like me. I have to look on my phone, too. <laughs> oh, Bring the War Home. So Standoff was about the, the Bundy um, wow. standoff with also comparing it to Standing Rock. That book wow. is absolutely fantastic. It's by Jacqueline. I'll find, I'll find it the title the reason why that book is is by Jacqueline Keeler because what she does is she does a comparison for the, the standoff at Standing Rock and then the Bundy standoff in in Oregon and talking wow. about how they were pulling upon the same sort of tropes but the respect given to the Bundys yep. versus the the Native Americans what is, is that book called again is standoff the standoff 
Okay. Write yeah, that down. Okay. It, it is. We should have that in if we don't have it. That sounds really Yeah, Standoff, Colin, Standing Rock, The Bundy Movement, and The American Story. Um, that book is fantastic. Okay. Um, it's fantastic because it really, really, really gets you thinking. Like, um, Yeah, I mean, even yeah. just your description of it. It's like, yeah, you're right. Yeah, and I, I was like, how did I? It was published, I think like three or four years ago. And I don't know why I hadn't heard of it until recently, but yeah, you need to read that. Um, bring the war home. I just cracked open. So do you have like a genre that you gravitate? I, yeah. Toward? Cause I feel like you're reading a lot of nonfiction. Well, th those two are my nonfiction things and I'm reading those because, um, I'm, it's all for research for this next book. Right. Okay. Um, we do have to have a little bit of a segue. Uh, into your next book <laughs> because I was on your website and is it true what you wrote on there about what you're writing next this Rip Van Winkle oh yeah Grandma Dementia yeah so it sounds so it cool. sounds so good okay yeah, tell us and then we'll come back to what you're reading <laughs> um okay so going back um Russians Among Us that's the book right. that, that talks about um about the illegals program from the Soviet Union and anyways like years ago when I was doing research for the All-American I dove headlong into um all the Freedom of Information Act CIA records that had been released about the Korean War and I did about 10 years so I, I read a whole bunch and there was just this one sentence in one evaluation in like 1965 or 66 I and I lost it when my computer died um, <laughs> of course that's the way it works but there's like there's two quotes there was one quote from a CIA evaluation saying that we are concerned. It was it was along the lines that the way the North Koreans insert their agents into South Korea leads us to wonder if our new immigration law will allow them to insert agents into the U.S. from South Korea from by South going Korea. now north to south to north to south to the U.S. with the new immigration law. That and then a second one was in the eighties where they're, the North Koreans, right when Kim Jong-il was um, taking over their, the RGB, their, their, um, their KGB type of thing. Mm -hmm. And the, they did a lot of terrorism where they killed some dignitaries down in Thailand. They blew up several airplanes. They were threatening the, the 88 Olympics in South Korea. And the one American congressman said like, yes, there was issues, but that's long been taken care of. Um, and just the way it, because it was during one of those reviews, like, is there a threat to our American athletes going over there? And he was overly confident and he said something and I was like, that's weird. And I started like, because I've done so much reading, like what I do know is that, excuse me, the, the South Korean, um, KCIA, the Angibu, who's, that guy, that character in the All American Sarge, yeah. like um, those people were real and they were frightening and they were evil, like just straight up, like cold blooded people. That what they did was anything they felt necessary in order to protect their country, which was all the things that you cannot do in the daylight. They were hunting spies in South Korea and lobbing off heads. That's how they did it. They chopped off the heads and they sent them up to Seoul and said, like, these are the spies that we caught today. Oh, my God. And there's a couple of other. Uh, there's another book I could point it out if I have some time to find it. But um, talking about, like, some of those 
early efforts. But anyways, I was reading, I thought like, oh, those are just kind of like old wives tales. And then the more I would read from the, like the CIA reports where it's just like, even the CIA was thinking like, these guys were, this, this, this is bad. Um, anyways, years later, I, I, I was hanging out with, um, some people who were telling me about, um, about the Soviet illegals program. And I started doing all my reading. And one thing I do know is that the North Koreans copied everything the Soviets did. Wow. If there is an illegals program, they did it, of course, in South Korea. That's well known. But they would have sent somebody to the U.S. If for nothing else, just because that's what the Soviets did. So yeah. they would do it too. And they would do it in the same way that South Korean intelligence does it, which is still happening today, I believe, where they send agents in, like the Chinese do this too. It was actually recently, like the, the Chinese in, intelligence office was was shut down in New York um, because they were intimidating the Chinese community. Um, the South Koreans did it for many years, and I'm pretty sure they still do it today, where they intimidate Korean communities because a lot of Korean communities in America still have, are, still citizens of south korea and they can vote mm. um, and so they do intimidation efforts the north koreans would do it um because they're hoping to get access to people who can this is now purely speculation mm -hmm. money launder they would send people over here to money launder wow because that's what they did with all the recent cyber crime um like the hacking of uh, sony pictures they robbed the bank of uh was it not malaysia not Thailand, maybe it was Malaysia, the the big cyber hack went long ago. They mm -hmm. stole like close to a billion dollars um, or tried to. They were only able to get like 500 million, only. Only 500 million. <laughs> but um, they completely wrecked Sony Pictures and Malaysia, all these. Maybe? maybe that's it, yeah. Bangladesh. Bangladesh, there we go, yeah. Um, and what they did is they sent a bunch of people over to the Philippines to launder their money through the casinos in, in the Philippines. And so the North Koreans, they would, of course, they have agents in the U.S. And the, the question is, like, what kind of agents? Well, I speculate that this would be in the same model as the Soviet illegals program. Now, they would be really hard to find out. And as far as we know, nothing has ever come of it. Why would nothing come of it? Now, there's that, you know, you're overestimating uh, your adversary and say, like, okay, well, it's because they were too good. Mm -hmm. North Koreans were always really good at copying, but not completely good. It was always like <laughs> something was kind of broken okay. in everything they did. So, like, what is the kind of broken version of this story? North Korean, illegal trained, comes to the U.S., he or she opens up a store, a Korean market, or works janitorial like everybody else, finds a bit of success, and is like, they can't touch me here. Yeah, I'm and out. So, so they just live the American dream. Yeah. Now, that yeah, the, the, the American <laughs> dreams with air quotes. But um, that generation is in nursing homes now. Yeah. Dementia does some weird things. And that I've takes been, you back. I, I, I'm unfortunate and unfortunate that I've had family members who passed away with really bad dementia. And when you are when you spend so much time with them and your conversations just kind of fade and they're not talking to you. They're talking to 
somebody you're not even sure who it is, but they're 50 holding, years ago. Exactly. A conversation from 50 years ago. A scary thought is what if one of those people thinks they've just been activated <laughs> to do like I a love co- this idea. co-read whatever. Yeah. So is it written as a thriller or is it written as like a cute old person story? Oh, it's, it's like her granddaughter, right? It's and like- so granddaughter who's, you know, busy living her life and, you know, she's more of like, she's more similar to Chantel than, um, then definitely, definitely nothing like Bucky, but she's having a crisis in her life. She's turned 30, which is a crisis. Yeah, a crisis. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and grandma doesn't show up to her mother's funeral. It's like, how, how, do, how do you not show up to your daughter's funeral? Well, right. Nobody's talked to grandma for a while. Like, what do you mean? No one's talked to grandma. Well, grandma, like after her husband died, her husband died. Um, and you know, suddenly like at the same time, North Korea is doing normal, typical North Korean shit, you know, throwing some missiles up somewhere, maybe mm-hmm. they capture a fishing trawler <laughs> or whatever, and it breaks down, or I don't know. Um, but the idea is granddaughter is trying to find grandma and slowly comes to the realization that grandma is not grandma and grandma is doing really bad things. Oh my gosh, I love it so and much. So, right idea for a book. I yes. love it. Where are you? Where are you at in the process, writing process of this book? I wrote three different drafts of it, and I threw it all away. And, <laughs> uh, this one is um, because here's the thing: like the, initially, it wasn't grandma; it was like a father, and then it was a mother, and then because I don't know, like when you're writing, you're always trying to figure out like who the hell is actually telling the story, right. and if you got to figure it out right now. Um, part of the reason why I chose Rip Van Winkle and why I'm still working on it, and I don't know what it's going to turn out in the end. Um, I'm just going to trust the process and see where it goes. But like, if you've Rip Van Winkle is our first recognized great story, American, like as the United States story. Wow. And if you go back and you read it, it's this bizarro story where there's this useless guy who's very un-American, who's useless. Everyone knows he's useless, but he's kind of lovable because he's nice to everyone's kids and he'll help them fix their offenses, but not fix his own. And then one day, wife is like, you're absolutely useless. Get the hell out until you come back and be useful. <laughs> wow. And so dude and his and his dog are like, this sucks. Let's go shoot some squirrels or something so we can bring back some dinner. They go up, go up into the Catskills and, you know, they run into like this short dude who's got, he's like, hey, come help me carry this barrel of beer. And he's like, yeah, I'll do that. And carries this <laughs> barrel of beer, has this magnificent night up where like playing like bowling up in the mountains with these people who can bring thunder and drink a lot. And then he wakes up, he's got a beard, his, his, his musk is rusted out and he goes back into town and it's no longer a British colony. It's America. It's America. He's been asleep for 20 years. And his daughter's grown up. His son is just like him, equally useless. And his his wife is his wife is dead. And he's trying to profess his that he is Rip Van Winkle, and nobody believes him un, until a an old woman recognizes him. Yeah, that's Rip. <laughs> that's Rip Van Winkle. I've never read the story. Yeah, me neither. I now need I need to read, read it. it. And then secondly, it's the daughter who brings him back in. And so I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, I'm reading this story like it is really the way I read it versus the way a lot of like literary scholars have read it for many years is very different. It's like this is this is 
someone who is absolutely useless, very un-American, in the end, he's still not very American, is an immigrant story because they're all Dutch. And he is this 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 Dutch enclave and trying to move on to become American. And yet you have this dude who's living in the past, who has this like 20-year span where he's basically out of it. And then he comes back to his senses in an America that doesn't really make sense, but his daughter's going to guide him to the way to be American because... This is so like what you're talking about, about when you spend time in as, as an expat, you get yeah. stuck in the moment you left. Yeah. And so, so that's, consistent. That, and so oh. that's why I read, uh, when I read the story, I'm like, holy shit, this is... This, this is, is what cool. it was like to leave America for a decade. Exactly. Um but instead it's for 20 years and there's, you know, that whole like thundering, whatever I'm thinking like, okay, that's grandma's experience of living in the American life. What she really knows is what she was, she gets to America thinking that she's going to go do all this stuff, gets to America, goes through this bizarro 20, 40 years of like, whatever, I'm going to live the American dream. And then, you know what, something magical and mystical wakes her back up that's dementia i love, I and, love this idea and now dementia her, made her a killer <laughs> and, but granddaughter is just you know really doing badly in her mfa program is like i'm not gonna write anymore i'm no good at this shit and <laughs> she's like i and mom just died and my useless brother milk toast can't do anything and my father is busy being miserable where's grandma and so she's just trying to find grandma and um yeah, her she gets help, and of course Bucky and Juno are there to sort of help. Are you serious? They're your yeah. world's cross. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's so, so cool. But you know, the, again, like everything I'm talking about is like this is what I think the book's about. I don't know what it's going to be when I write it, but we'll find out. That's um, that's basically what's working on it. So like part of it is uh, all these books that I'm reading. The nonfiction books are all research, where I'm trying to figure out like okay. What are connections? Like, I'm pretty sure that whether white supremacists know it or not, they're actually funneling money for foreign governments. Um, that's my speculation because I think that's just too perfect. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> this is, this sounds fantastic. How much of your reading is in service to your writing? Is it all? You say? Uh, no, all my, um, all nonfiction pretty much is. Yeah. Um, but my fiction is usually it's usually just like books that i mean there are books i read in in service to to my writing i read charles portis a lot i read him again and again and again and again and part of it is because i think he's like the best american author that nobody really like keeps praise on i think charles portis is way better he wrote true grit and yeah. the dog of the south and those two books are perfect like you seriously can't i can't imagine a way to do that better mm. and when you you land that kind of special note and to be so remarkably humble both in the writing of it I think I think that's just magic. And so like whenever I'm stuck, I, I sit back and I think, well What would Charles Charles Portis do? What would Charles Portis do? Because he broke he managed to break all sorts of like bizarro plot rules and you don't understand why it works. And even people, at least for me, who spends a lot of time thinking about like how these things work, I can't explain it. This is somebody that knows how to do this stuff far better than I do. 
um, whenever I'm lost in the woods and I feel like I've written nothing but shit for the last few days, I'm going to sit back and read some Charles Portis because he'll make me laugh and I'll try to figure it out. And I won't, but I'll come up with my own answer. Like, well, what was, what was the question I would ask Charles Portis about when in regards to the scene? Like, and then I just, I don't know, I kind of apply it to what I'm trying to do. Hmm. Um, but yeah, Charles Portis. I'm also... For, for my book, I'm also reading um, Samuel Beckett. He wrote three novels that were all in conversation with each other. Um, Malloy, Malone Dies, and I forgot the last one. But if you've never read it, it's hilarious because it's about people with dementia who don't know where they are. And they don't know why they're there, but they're pretty sure they did something wrong. So it's okay <laughs> that they're safe. <laughs> <laughs> and, you're, and you're reading it and you're like, this is absolutely bad. I like that little, I like, I and I, I would enjoy in a book that you're describing that little bit of humor. Like, yeah, well, so like I'm reading that and I'm, I'm thinking like, okay, um, because I've never had dementia like what would what was the best literary form of dementia i know um i read that and then the rest of my reading is just purely shits and giggles because that's i mean yeah you gotta have fun yeah um i just read uh uh your well y slash n by Esther oh Lee. yeah um, i want to read we had that. so many conversations about that cover it's a great cover and also the content and do you think the cover matches the content? It's a great cover. I no matter what. I'm not gonna lie. I don't. I haven't. I've only seen the cover in passing because okay. I, had, I had the I had the um, the advanced reader copy. Yeah. Um, I got it from same. Like Louis. it just had a like a title on it. Yeah. It, it was just Y. It was YN and yeah. the author. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's the Escher. It's the Escher cover. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so um, I, I I haven't thought too much about the cover, but the book, the book is. It is wonderfully weird. Okay, I love. We love weird. weird. We love weird. It is. It is wonderfully, wonderfully weird. Um, and she gets like bizarro, like the the cicada thing. She got. She got that like completely on point, where you know they're they're so damn loud and you don't even really notice it. No, you um, if you if you're around it, like you, it's kind of like background noise. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the white noise of where are all do cicadas go I don't know. Is there is unique? a wonderful children's book by shantan called cicada they, they live in the ground yeah most of the time and then yeah. they come up and they Every, make a whole lot of yeah. noise yeah and then they die like they they're like se their lifespan is like 17 years yeah and this book is like a cicada working in an office building for 17 years like mm -hmm you know, going through, and it, there's hardly any words. The children's book. So my first draft of the book that I'm working on now was actually from the perspective of the character with the, with the dementia, but having been that 20 years working in an office job, mm. um, basically. And while everyone else laughed or whatever, he was, he was like the house plant yeah. and just kind of in there in the corner that everyone was like, Oh yeah, that's there. That makes me think of office space. You Where's should my stapler? I used to teach it to my eighth graders. I would read it aloud to them because in the end, the cicada trudges up the stairs of the office building because he's he's done. Like they're like, you have to leave now. It's been seventeen years. And that's he, pretty. That's he pretty grim. He it is. He trudges he, up the stairs to the roof, and then he jumps, and the wings go, and you're, and it's like what you interpret what happened, but the book is mostly wordless, yeah. and so it's like. I would use it to teach inferences. Like, 
Yeah, that's so, good. I like it. But I love that book, and the illustrations are cool. Do you have any authors like you will always buy their book? Like we have what we call auto buy authors. Like if they release a book, I don't even have to know what it's about. I will read it. Uh, Matt Johnson and Victor Lavelle, um, without a doubt. Okay. Um, I, I'm a huge fanboy. <laughs> I mean, and it's really like they know me now because um, not because of my writing, but because uh, what kept on happening is uh, like I would sneak into parties at like at, at like at conferences and I would just like go oh up God. to them and like scream like we need to go to conferences with you. We would do that with, with you. All our author friends and then they can sneak us into all our other authors that like ha- won't engage with us. And then we so what's ban- your favorite Matt Johnson? Because I want to look this up because we can pull together. Um, Joe's recommendations with the podcast. Uh, Loving Day is 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 fantastic. Um, Loving Day. Lo- yeah, Loving Day. I think that's yeah. I think that's the title. Um, it was not his last book, but the book before. I think it was like two books ago. Um, yeah, I mean, everyone talks about Pim. Pim's great, but no, Loving Loving Day. Matt with one T. Yeah, he's Matt pretty John. special. Oh, Matt's awesome, and he like. I remember like I met both of them. That's they a were, cool cover they too. Were, they were they were uh, smoking outside <laughs> after, and I, I went up and I was like, "You wrote this," and I'm like, ah! and like they're like, "Whoa, bro!" Like I'm like from Korea, and I like I swear to God, I read all your shit, and like please, like you know, keep writing or whatever. I, mean, I don't know what I said, but they just kind of looked at me. It was like. This this is. I mean, you'll probably like start getting a lot no. of it too. When we when we go and we like meet authors and if we've like read their books and obsessed, like I um one of my favorite books this year is Chain Gang All Stars, and we got to meet the author at Winter Institute and I was like we wanted to go up to his table and I had a bookseller ready to take the picture and I made a total fool of myself yeah. in front of him because like oh my god I love your book so much. <laughs> He was like, okay, thank you. And oh, you should have seen Amanda meeting Kate DiCamillo. So <laughs> it she's one of my favorites. And I just think like she's a great Amer- like a great our yeah. great American uh children's author. Like I I struggle to find a parallel. I mean, like, you know, there was Beverly Cleary and uh, Judy Bloom, but Kate does something that is so universal. And I hope your children read all her books. Mm-hmm. Um, but she is also just a magical human being that shares her goodness and love with other you know the world so yeah that was that was a moment for me um so yeah uh a couple other authors that just popped in my head um chris lee um her novel i can't remember the not the name of it but the novel is fantastic like how to be a north korean i think is what it's called that's fantastic but she writes books slowly unfortunately she always it's got like to... donna tart who's one of my favorites yeah. like, oh, every 10 years i'll get a book um <laughs> celesting and i love yeah. celesting yeah. is just i she brought back a third person omniscient in a big way everything and i never told you is a brilliant book it's just it's like yeah it's another one of those impeccable books where you're like I don't know what you could do to make it better i know and every once in a while you read a book and you're like wow i have nothing Nothing yeah. to say in critique of this. It's almost depressing when you finish it. Yeah. Where you're like, oh no. And uh, for short stories, Amy Hempel. Amy Hempel is okay. just, she's she's absolutely fantastic. Do you like to read weird, bizarre stuff? Every once in a while. But um, I did, you know, the, 
the, the funny thing is like I did a I did a PhD, which means that like one of the parts of the PhD is you have to take a, a comprehensive test where you have three long reading lists and you're tested on that. And by the test is you have to be able to find ways to combine them all in your essay responses. And like part part of that experience was I read a whole lot of books that were like really, really weird. Yeah. Um, be, not weird in themselves individually, but like how do you associate one book with another? Mm. And that doesn't always work. So like I read a lot of Bolaño and a lot of the South Americans and that shit is cool but really weird. I hate Metamorphosis by Kafka. I love weird stuff. I recently read one called Brutes by Diz Tate. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the fuck that book was. I don't know what I read, but I kind of liked it. You also read Lauren Groff. (laughs) Do you ever read Lauren Groff? No, I don't. Oh my God. The new there's a new book coming out in September and I was like, well, maybe we should consider it for a subscription. I hated reading it, but it was brilliant. <laughs> Read Julio Cortazar's um, Hopscotch. Okay. Um, the re- the, I love it, but it's, it's not for the faint of heart because it's one of those books where it is designed for you to read it a minimum of three times. Okay. Because the chapters... It's got a great cover. It's got it's got chapters and then it oh, has yeah. like an appendix section and it's like collected notes of a character's collected notes. And okay. when you open the book up, there's like like he gives you like, okay, this is the if you want to read it like a novel, this is the order you read the chapters. If you want to read it like like blank, you read it straight through. And if you want to figure out the madness or something like that. Wow. And so was, which way did you do it? Figure out the madness? I wrote, I read it two times through and the first time was like the novel. And the second time was like his like bizarro reading. Um, and I still don't know what the hell is going <laughs> on. In that. There's a, do you, what was the name of that bookstore that has that book club? Oh, it's page. Is it page 158? Yeah. They have a book club called what the fuck did I just read? And I kind of want to do that. (laughs) Shout out page 158. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Because a lot of times I'll read a book that's just really strange and I didn't totally get it. But yeah, but it's like, okay, is it is it strange for an artistic reason or is it uh, for a pretentious reason? And so like there's a difference there. There's a huge difference because like Julio Cortazar is like is completely is completely written like I haven't read that. You should. We're Which di- one? American Mermaid. Amanda it's and I love fucking it. amazing. Well, like Lauren Television. Groff's book, which I I didn't particularly enjoy reading. I didn't find it pretentious. Um, but I kind of like when you view it as a work of art. I see what she's trying to do, and she accomplished that thing. But it's not like reading for enjoyment. Yeah. You know. And yeah, that's and that's something like. I think that goes back to that idea that like you you might complete something, but is it worth is it worth sharing? And I think part of it. <laughs> and, and, uh, no, I'm serious here. Like, you, I yes, it's art, but ultimately it's entertainment. Yeah. If, well, there's some books that I I read and appreciate, and that I would not recommend to like 95 percent of the customers who come yeah, into my store. But that's because. 
that's because we read a lot. And so right. we're, we're looking for that, like, hey, I, I'm cool with... Like Surprise we a, me. We have a stamina. We're like, we're going to roll with it. But, I mean, so, like, the question always goes back to, like, okay, infinite jest. <laughs> Work of art, or is it is it pretentious? Now, like, I've read that sucker twice, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that... I'm not doing that for the for the kudos. I am. That's a little pretentious, Jeff. <laughs> it, that, also, the PhD thing. That, oh that, right, that, right. That got me. That got me in there. I but started it. I've never finished it. It's it is kind of rewarding, but it's one of those things where you're reading it and like, I don't, I don't see how that book couldn't be half the size and achieve all the same stuff. You know what I feel that way about? The Idiot by Elif Bottman. Is that how you pronounce her last name, Bottman? But you know, when I read the Poisonwood Bible the first time, have you ever read the Poisonwood? I have Wood? not, but the, but the Idiot, I've every there's only love and hate. Every, I've never I met anyone that's... I hate it. Sorry, Elif, if you want to come to our store... I would be happy to have you. <laughs> <laughs> but I... But when, the first time I read the Poisonwood Bible, I was like, oh, this should be like 200 pages or shorter. And then I read it again like 10 years later and it blew my fucking mind. And I wouldn't change a thing about it. So, I don't know. Well, that, But Infinite Jest is huge. Infinite Jest is huge. I don't... And like if you read Broom, of this, Broom to the System, like his earlier work, you're like that got that same vibe like you're really like you you're really 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 good you can do these tight windows like what the i'll i'll spoil it for you since i don't think you're do you're, it so the end of it is like you're just figuring out that the like you, of course there's that classic question like are you in the in the machine of the infinite jest or or is it are you just part of uh, like a figment of gately's uh, imagination who's dying okay there you go so the final thing is like are you in like the the memory of gately dying and so if, like for me when i when i when i got to there and that was kind of like the things i was grappling it was like i don't care <laughs> <laughs> i'm cool with either outcome well i just want to say that in the two and a half years we've been open we've only sold the infinite jest twice You've outsold Infinite Jess in it, one month, for sure. This is a timely conversation, sure. though, because one of our booksellers, Jess, even earlier this week, asked me, she's like, I'm thinking about reading Infinite Jess. Should I do it? And I was like, well, I started it for a book club one time, and this was like probably more than 10 years ago. And I didn't make it more than 100 pages. She read True Grit and The Count of Monte Cristo. Crisco. 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 Crisco, yeah. thanks. It's not Crisco. <laughs> hey, I've been drinking soju. Don't make fun of me. We have to have a toast to send you off. Empty glasses. I have a little tail. Keep the soju going. Or no, flowing. flowing. And the boat's going. There we go. Thanks for joining us for this special episode of Popping Off with Dog-Eared Books. Be sure to like, subscribe, and comment if you enjoyed this. And if you know of someone we should interview on a future Popping Off, DM us in our social media.